glass, if people could just put your homework up on the table there as you're walking out. Okay, we've been discussing the general circulation, and first we spoke about the general circulation in the tropics, which is dominated by the Hadley cells, which are these convective cells that dominate the tropical latitudes. And there's this simple overturning in the atmosphere due to the uneven heating of the Earth's surface. Then we went on to discuss the, uh, the rest of the general circulation, the general circulation at the mid and higher latitudes. And it's different once you get to the higher latitudes because the Coriolis effect is so strong. Coriolis effect increases with latitude so that simple convection cells don't work when you get north of about 30 degrees north and south of the equator. So the atmosphere resorts to different mechanisms to do the job of the general circulation, which is to redistribute Earth's heat. And what we've been doing is trying to build a picture of what the general circulation looks like at higher levels in the atmosphere. And the first thing that we speak about when we speak about the higher latitudes is the, um, the basic appearance of the general circulation is the main feature is the mid and higher latitudes are dominated by upper level westerly winds that extend from roughly 25 degrees north and south of the equator right up to about the North Pole. The wind blows from west to east. And the reason for that, we identified, it's because of the equator to pole temperature gradient, which results in the uh, lower thicknesses up near the polar regions, and that results in lower heights in the, in the higher latitudes, and the, that height gradient, the pole to, to equator uh, height gradient in combination with the Coriolis effect causes westerly winds in the upper parts of the atmosphere in both the northern and southern hemisphere. And this was kind of in a nutshell an overall picture of what the flow of the upper troposphere looks like. You have this wavy flow of westerly winds from about 25, roughly the near the Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, poleward in both the northern and southern hemispheres. And that's the reason why in these latitudes weather systems move from west to east. And we can look at that schematically like this. And it shows that with cold air, over the North Pole, looking at the Earth from the top, from over the North Pole, you see that the wind rotates. Now, this is just schematically concentrating the westerly flow, which really is through a very wide range of latitude. Here, we're, what we're doing is we're concentrating it all in the in one narrow band. It's not really quite like that. It's really from about 30 degrees north all the way up to the North Pole. But here we're looking at it schematically. 
is all concentrated in ver one very narrow band, which we're calling the jet stream. Now, as we go on, we'll start to see that that's almost not an exaggeration. While the upper level westerly flow is general over most of the latitudes, it tends to be concentrated in one or two very narrow bands, uh, which we call the jet stream. And that is where we, we finished off the last time. We identified what the jet stream is. And just to go over once again, we had a page of notes. And that was indicated that the jet stream is a narrow band to very strong winds embedded in the upper level westerly flow. And they correspond to bands of the atmosphere where the temperature contrasts are also very strong because of the relationship between uh, heights and thicknesses. The strong winds occur where there are strong temperature gradients, and therefore the jet streams are associated with fronts. And last time we were looking at one example. Uh, this was back in October. One day, this was the jet stream, where the winds are indicated by the, the blue colors of winds of up to about 150 miles an hour here over the state of Montana. And of course, the wind is flowing as these arrows on the on the map indicate. So the wind is flowing parallel to the high contours, with lower heights, lower pressures on the left, the way the wind always flows, and these strong winds correspond to very strong temperature gradients in the atmosphere. And that day, this is what the temperature map looked like. The different colors represent different uh, uh, temperature bands in roughly 10 degree increments. And it indicated that uh, temperatures, this was back in October, were only in the uh, teens up here over western Canada. And they were up around uh, 80 or 80 degrees or so down here. Most of the strong temperature contrast was in this zone here, where you go from go uh, rapidly to different shades of color. And at, at higher altitudes, that is where you found the strongest winds. Okay, so the pull to the pull to equator temperature gradient causes the westerlies, and where that temperature gradient is strongest, the winds are strongest. Simple as that. The stronger the temperature contrast, the stronger the winds are going to be. And we're also going to identify these zones of strong temperature contrast with fronts. A front, we briefly discussed, fronts we talked about as lifting mechanisms. They're the leading edge of air masses. Air masses are large bodies of air that cover vast parts of the Earth's surface that have relatively uniform temperature characteristics. So there are cold air masses, and there are warm air, air masses. And on this particular day, there was a cold body of air, or a cold mass of air, over the northwestern part of the continent. And separating that from the warmer air along the southern United States and the eastern part of the United States and Canada, where there was a strong temperature contrast, there was a front. There are actually two cold fronts, one along the East Coast, one which came through the Great Lakes and then back up here through the Rocky Mountains, 
which represented another transition to yet colder air, which was, and it was all coldest back here. And the point of this is that where you have a front on the weather map, like you did on this particular day, you very often have a jet stream behind the atmosphere, because jet streams and temperature gradients are very closely related because of the relationship between thickness and heights at upper levels of the atmosphere. Okay, so we've identified, okay, number one, the main feature of the Earth's circulation of high latitudes are westerns in the upper troposphere, winds blowing from west to east. Superimposed on that, we have what we'll call a secondary characteristic, and that is jet streams. Jet streams are certain zones in the westerlies where those westerly winds are especially strong. So realistically, the westerlies over the mid-latitudes tend to be concentrated into these jet streams where the winds are strongest. And that's associated with these areas of stronger temperature gradients. Okay, another, so let's write these down. So we have at mid and upper um, circulation. There are upper level westerlies. Westerlies refers to the, the flow of air in the upper troposphere, which is from west to east. Superimposed upon that, we have jet streams. Jet streams are these fast flowing rivers of air, which look like this at, at 300 millibars, where the height contours are close together. It means there's a strong pressure gradient, which means that the winds are strong because the pressure gradient determines the wind speed, and it's related to how close together the height contours of the isobars are. And when we look at this map, we also see a secondary feature, which is a characteristic of the flow patterns of the mid-latitudes. We notice that when we look at the flow of the jet stream, it's not simply west-east. We call the flow of the upper troposphere westerlies. Well, that's because ultimately it makes its way all around the world going from west-east, but in doing so, it doesn't just go west to east, it goes in a wild, wavy, looping pattern. I mean, if we look at the, uh, schematically here, we looked at basically a westerly flow, but in reality, it's even loopier than this. It looks like this tremendous dip here in the flow of the westerlies, which run parallel to the height contours, and it goes way, the winds go, this room goes way up over northeastern Canada and so. We notice that basically there are wrinkles. We can talk about them as wrinkles in the flow. 
It's not a, a round flow around the world. It's a very wrinkly flow. It's a very wavy flow. We notice that there are atmospheric waves. These waves are, we, we call these loops that the upper level flow pattern has. We call these atmospheric waves. A wave is like an ocean wave. I mean, a wave is, is a, it's an undulation in the surface of the water. This is, or a looping pattern in, in the surface of the water. This is a wave. These are waves in the flow pattern of the atmosphere. We also notice when we look at this map that these waves come in different sizes. There are little tiny waves. Here's a little loop here. See this little subtle little ripple here? That's a wave. Then there is this huge loop, like so. And then if you were to take a global view, if you were to go out and take an entire global view of the northern hemisphere, you might see that in a sense this wave and the one over here are somehow kind of related with maybe a little ripple in between. The point is there are long wave, there are big waves and little waves, and they're all superimposed on one another. And we call these waves of different wavelengths long waves and short waves. So we have secondarily to the westerlies, we have jet streams, indicating that the flow is concentrated into narrow zones, and we also have waves. Now, these waves move. The waves move, and they move from west to east in the direction that the winds are flowing. The winds are actually blowing through the waves. The winds here are blowing at about 150 miles an hour, where it's purple, uh, where it's the lighter blue color is roughly 100 miles an hour, but the flow is very concentrated, it's very fast, where the high contours are packed together. But these loops themselves are actually moving around the world. The waves move. And if we set this, if we look at um, today's weather map, here is an animation of the 300 millibar, which is the upper stratosphere flow pattern this week. And strong jet stream here along 
way to the south along the Gulf Coast and coming up the East Coast. That is along a very strong temperature gradient, but the point here is we are in the middle of a wave right now, and if we set this map into motion, we can see that in the course of the next few days, that wave is going to be rolling up in this direction, and yet another one comes through. So these waves actually move. So these upper-level westerlies are characterized by jet streams and these loops, these atmospheric, atmospheric waves. Now, we have some names for these waves. If we look at an atmospheric wave, we see they look like this. Okay, these are the high contours. Okay, where the high contours move southward, remember these are lower heights to the north, we call this a trough. And where you have the high contours arching toward the poles, we call this a ridge. Here on the map today, we can see series. This is at some point in the sequence here. Here's a, a trough here. Here's a ridge over here. Now, the thing is, these troughs and ridges, these waves in the flow, are associated with moving warm and cold pockets of the atmosphere. Can anyone guess why that why would that be? Why would what would the trough ridge pattern have to do with cold and warm parts of the atmosphere? I mean think about why heights are low in any particular spot and why they're high in any particular spot. What does that do to? Well, but think about this. It all has to do with the relationship of temperature and thickness. Remember, the upper level flow pattern, the upper level uh, high pattern that you see, is related to the temperature of the atmosphere. Where temperatures are, are warm, the atmospheric thickness is, is large. Where it's cold, the atmospheric thickness is low. That's why there's a big low over the North Pole to begin with. And these westerlies are just flowing around this low that's over the North Pole. Well, if that's true, in areas where the cold air extends southward from the North Pole, you're going to have the upper-level heights looping southward as well. So what happens is these troughs, where you have the heights dipping southward are associated with cold pockets in the atmosphere. Remember, it's the, there's a big low up over the North Pole because it's so cold. And where you have the heights looping southward, it means there's an extension of cold air southward. So these troughs are cold. Troughs are always cold because troughs are associated with low atmospheric thickness. Ridges are always warm. 
Upper level troughs are cold. Upper level ridges are always warm. Yes. Is that because the air is coming from the south, like near the equator? Like, is it the well, the, the reason, no, that's a good point. The reason why the air is warm in ridges is the air has come from the south there. And in the troughs, very good point, the air has come down from the poles. That's exactly right. So in the southern hemisphere, is it flipped? Well, it's flipped. You would have the, in the definition of a trough is where the upper level heights loop toward the equator. So in the northern hemisphere, that would mean they were looping northward because everything is upside down. It's colder as you go south. Okay. And a ridge is where the upper level heights are arching toward the pole, away from the equator. Everything is upside down. So the point here is that troughs are cold. They're an extension of cold air from the north. That's why there's an extension of lower thicknesses and lower heights from the north. Ridges are warm because they represent higher thicknesses and warmer air coming up from the south. That's why the heights are higher. And these troughs and ridges, which are associated with cold and warm anomalies, travel around the world. And they come in different wavelengths. Not only these, not only are there troughs and there are ridges, but then the troughs and ridges, so waves are made of troughs and ridges. Made of troughs and ridges. And remember, the troughs are cold, the ridges are warm. And they also come in different wavelengths. And we actually have a name for the different wavelengths, where you have troughs and ridges which are roughly this size, like these waves coming through here. We call these synoptic scale waves. Remember when we spoke about weather systems, we spoke about uh, Waves which are roughly the size of a large American state are, are called synoptic scale weather systems. And then there are larger continental planetary scale weather systems. Very long waves. In other words, on this map here, we really have at this, let me stop this, we have two. Here, at this moment, we can see that we have, here's a, here's a trough over here, here's another trough over here, but both of those are part of actually a larger trough. You see, there's, you can define one big dip if you ignore all the little details like this and this. You have one large trough, and then superimposed on that, you have another trough here, another trough here. These are what we call, this is what we call a synoptic scale trough. This trough has a wavelength, which is roughly the size of a, of a weather system on the weather map. But then we also have a larger dip, of which both of those smaller troughs are a part. And we call that a long wave. 
The little synoptic scale wave we call a short wave, the big wave we call a long wave, and in meteorology we actually have a name, very long, you'll see this in your textbook, very long wave troughs are actually called Rossby waves. And these shorter wavelengths uh, troughs are called synoptic scale waves. Um, but in all cases, a trough represents lower thicknesses and colder air. And when a trough moves through, it means colder weather. That's where we're working for. Okay, so getting back to the general circulation, in the upper latitudes we have westerlies that dominate the upper level flow. And Superimposed on the westerlies, we have two different features that we need to think about. We have jet streams, and we have troughs and ridges, which are waves which are ripples, or ripples or these big loops in the flow, which move. And everything moves from west to east in the direction that the flow is moving. So we have a picture of what it looks like. Upper level waves, jet streams, one thing that we haven't addressed, though, we've described what it looks like, but how does it do the job? Remember, the, the purpose of the general circulation is to transport heat. The Hadley cells, the convective cells in the tropics function to overcome the pull to equator heating imbalance. The question now, justifiably, you should be saying, well, what, you know, if this is what the general circulation is, fine. Westerly winds, and it's got jet streams, it has waves. How does it do the job? I started this discussion by saying that the atmosphere resorts to other mechanisms to, do the, to perform the function of transporting heat to overcome the heating imbalance in the mid and high latitudes. And it works using the westerlies and the waves. How does that work? How does that do the job? Can anyone guess how that does the job? How am I what I've thus far described do the job of transporting heat from lower to higher latitudes. Well, it does. I mean, air always moves from high pressure to low pressure. That's, that's true. But in, in a very broad sense, If you look at what's going on here, doesn't it kind of look like? Yeah. I was going to say, you know, consider that the cold air is coming from the poles and the warm air is coming from the crater, and they're, you know, they're hitting each other. And it's kind of like they're mixing. Yeah. You got it. That is the answer. They're like eddies in a stream, which are mixing up the water as these waves move around the world in the upper level westerly flow, they're like turbulent eddies in a stream which are pushing warm air north and cold air south. That's exactly what's happening. They're mixing up the atmosphere. In the tropics, we had the convective Hadley cells as vertical overturning, which is transporting heat. In higher latitudes, we have these horizontal eddies which do the same thing. The atmosphere resorts to horizontal eddies because it has to due to the Coriolis force. It can no longer maintain the simple convection cells of the tropics at higher latitudes. This, the circulation breaks down 
into westerly flow with big eddies in it, and the eddies act to mix up the atmosphere. That is exactly what happens. Yes. An eddy is a is a whirlpool. Is a an eddy is is a, a you know I keep I, I accumulate chalk over here. One two three. An eddy is if this is the flow of the stream like so. If it breaks up into an eddy, it goes like this. Okay, it's a whirl. Okay. And the flow breaks up into these eddies, and the eddies do the job of homogenizing the atmosphere, of transporting warm air north and cold air south. And we can look at another uh, dramatization here, which makes it even a little bit more easy to see. Here is the current jet stream forecast for the next week. And what you're seeing here, where you see the shading, you're seeing uh, winds of, of higher wind speed on this analysis. So you're looking at an, an analysis of the jet stream. Um, and the wind speed in knots, where you see the darker gray shades, you're basically looking at better than winds of 100 or 120 miles an hour going around the world. Here's the United States. And you're looking at the world from over the northern hemisphere. And basically, what you're looking at here, when you look at the jet stream, it's the zone where the flow is concentrated. That's the jet stream. And you can see that it breaks up. It looks, imagine that you're looking at eddies in a stream. Look at how the flow of the stream is breaking up into these whirls. Okay. Think of the jet stream as a river. And the river, at many points in its flow around the world, is breaking up into these huge loops, which are acting to mix up the atmosphere. And in so doing, they're doing the job of the general circulation, which, as you know, functions to overcome the uneven heating of the Earth's surface. So backing up from all this, so we're, again, so the general circulation is the average, normal, time average snapshot of the atmosphere. It's characterized by these con simple convection cells in the tropics, this simple vertical overturning of warm air rising and cold air sinking in the tropics, which transports the heat from south to north. When you get north of 30 degrees latitude, the whole system breaks down because of the rotation of the Earth. The Coriolis force is too strong, and the atmosphere resorts to a different mechanism. It, re it resorts to westerly winds, which concentrate into narrow bands, and then the narrow bands are like a stream that break up into wild eddies. And these eddies, which we call atmospheric waves, do the job of transporting the heat and overcoming the heating imbalance of the Earth. Okay? All right. Now we're going to go on to see that these eddies in the stream here, not only do they do the job of transporting heat, they're also associated with storms. The big winter storms that we have 
are nothing more than these eddies in the screen which are passing by. The big storm systems on the weather map, which we'll be discussing next week, called mid-latitude cyclones, are associated with the upper level troughs in the upper atmospheric flow. Yes? So if there's areas that have more of the jet stream, would you say that there's more chance of Yes. There, the, these eddies that form tend to form when the jet stream gets very, very strong. What happens is when the winds get very, very... What happens is the winds of the jet stream get very, very strong because temperature gradients become very, very strong. Okay? Because they're related. And when temperature gradients get very, very strong, that's where big storms develop. And when the storms develop, because of the temperature gradients, the jet stream breaks up into these wild whirl whirlwinds. And that's where we get the storms. That's exactly how it happens. Okay, so this is the general circulation. Uh, we know what it is. It's the time average or normal state of the atmosphere. It functions to transport heat and overcome the Earth's heating imbalance. And it basically has two different regimes. It has a tropical regime, which is dominated by the Hadley cells. And it has a mid and upper latitude regime, which is dominated by the upper level westerlies. And then the upper level westerlies are characterized by jet streams and waves. And as the jet streams break up into waves, that does the job of transporting the heat. Okay, and that's the way it works. Does the same thing happen when we do the southern hemisphere? Exactly the same. Exactly the same. In the southern hemisphere, if we go back to the, um, we go back to the upper level map of the world circulation, the southern hemisphere has westerlies too. Because even though everything is deflected to the left, it's also upside down. Okay? So you wind up with westerlies, this wavy pattern of westerlies up here, also in the mid and upper latitudes of the southern hemisphere, and easterlies in between. In the zone of the Hadley cells, there's weak easterly flow. Okay, and as I mentioned last time, that's because in this zone of latitude there are very the temperature gradients are very weak. And the high-pressure zone at the Earth's surface, which is the result of the downward branch of the Hadley cell, extends all the way up to the upper atmosphere. And if you have high pressure here and high pressure here at the downward branch of the southern Hadley cell, due to the Coriolis force, you wind up with easterlies in between. But we'll get to that when we look at hurricanes. But for now, we're looking at the, the important part for our purposes is the westerlies, because that that's the mechanism that uh, does the heat transport as it breaks up into these waves. And in the zone of the easterlies, the thing that transports heat are the Hadley cells, the vertical overturning. Okay, well, now we're at a good point to jump into the next topic, which are air masses. And let's find. Glibly so far, but an air mass is a large body of air 
which has more or less uniform temperature and moisture characteristics. More or less. So in other words, it's a, it's a, a, a large body of air where the temperatures are similar. Like it's cold, it's, it's 10 degrees here, it's like 10 degrees out in Omaha, it's like zero up in Duluth, maybe it's 20 in St. Louis, basically cold over a large area. So we're in the same mass of air, more or less uniform moisture and temperature characteristics. Now, if we look at the weather map, this was a weather map uh, back in October. We looked at this one before, and it's a good one to look at as far as air masses go. Notice that we have a front. Remember, we looked at this already. A front is the leading edge of an air mass. Air mass is a large body of air with more or less uniform temperature and moisture characteristics, and it has an outer boundary. And the outer boundary of an air mass is a front. And if the air mass, whichever direction the air mass is advancing, is indicated by the symbols on the front. If you have a, uh, a blue line with <coughs> these T's on it, I'll get to this front later on, it means that the air mass was moving toward the south and toward the, toward the east. And everything back here was, everything here over the northwestern part of the continent was one air mass. So the air had more or less similar temperature characteristics and moisture characteristics back here. So it was basically cold. Here, there was a different air mass, and here, yet a different one. All of them separated by fronts, and in all cases, the air masses seem to be moving from west to east, indicated by the fact that the fronts indicated the symbols all on the eastward point inside. Now, the question is, how did the air over this part of the continent get cold. I made the statement, this is a cold air mass back here. This is a warm air mass here over the ocean. How, did, how exactly did that happen? Well, the temperature and moisture characteristics of the atmosphere result from the continuous exchange of energy and water vapor from the Earth's surface. Basically, air takes on the characteristics of the surface over which it passes. Air is conditioned by its passage over the surface of the Earth. If it's passing over the polar ice, it becomes very cold. If it's passing over a tropical ocean, it gets very warm. And all of the moisture evaporating from the warm sea surface of the tropics also makes it very moist. So air takes on the characteristics of the surface over which it passes. And basically, an air mass forms a body of air with more or less 
uniform temperature and moisture character characteristics will form when the air is allowed to sit over a certain surface for a long period of time. In other words, this process does not happen overnight. If the air is allowed to sit over the polar ice for a long period of time, it will take on the characteristics of that surface. If the air is sitting over the tropical Atlantic for a long period of time, it will take on the characteristics of the tropical Atlantic. So this is the way air masses form. Air masses form. Cold air masses form because they've been sitting over cold surface. Yeah? Um, how do you know, like, what conditions does air sit? What makes like, the air sit? Yeah, because we haven't really talked about air just, like, sitting. Like, okay. About it moving, That's a great it. question. Because of the fact that the upper-level winds are concentrated in jet streams, remember, we have a general westerly flow. I was going to get to this in a minute, but I might as well talk about it now. We have, we have a situation where in the mid-latitudes of the Earth, the, there's a general westerly flow. But it tends to be concentrated into these narrow bands called the jet stream. The jet stream and the strongest winds tends to sit right over the middle of the mid-latitudes. The strongest winds of the upper atmosphere tend to sit right over us. And because of the fact that the strongest upper-level winds sit over the zone which runs from about 35 degrees north to about 55 or 60 degrees north, in that zone, weather systems move very fast. Because weather systems are associated with the eddies in the stream. And where the flow is faster, the eddies move faster. So the weather systems on the surface that are associated with that also move faster. The point being that in the mid-latitudes, where we live here, air masses are not allowed to form. They don't form here because the upper level flow is too fast. Air masses only form where air is allowed to sit for a long period of time. Air is only allowed to sit for a long period of time where the upper level flow is not so fast. And that is the case in the far north and down in the tropics, not in the mid-latitudes because the weather patterns aren't quiet enough. And what we will do here is we will look at a map which shows where, it's kind of dim, but I think you can see the United States over here. This shows the source regions for air masses. And we can see on this map that the source regions for air masses Air masses which are cold are represented by these purple circles, and warm air masses are orange here. We can see that air masses form either at high latitudes up here or at very low latitudes. Air masses do not form in the mid-latitudes. They do not form in the mid-latitudes because air doesn't sit still long enough because that's where the upper level flow is so strong, that's where the eddies move quickly, 
and with the eddies moves the weather and the air, and it just doesn't sit long enough. You can't get an air mass unless the air is allowed to sit over the ground, the same ground, for a long period of time. And on this map, you can see that air masses form over Canada. They form over the high Arctic, over the Arctic sections of ocean, and down in the deep tropics. And they invade from north and south into the mid-latitudes. Okay, that's why one day it's cold and one day it's warm. All right? So, air mass, so we know what air masses are. They're bodies of air with uniform characteristics. Now we know how they form. They form because the air is allowed to sit in one place for a long time. And we know that these areas where they're allowed to form are never in the mid-latitudes because the weather isn't quiet enough. Air moves, air masses, and the, everything moves too quickly. They form down here and up here. Now, these air masses form and then they migrate. As you can see on this map, they start up in the high latitudes and they come south or they start in the tropics and they come north. It is the migration of air masses that causes the weather to be warm here one week and cold the next week. This explains why the temperatures here or anywhere in the mid-latitudes change so much from day to day. It's because air masses are migrating. So in other words, previously, when we, we spoke about temperature in chapter 3 in the most simplistic way, I told you the temperature is a function at any location of latitude, altitude, and continentality. Well, if air didn't move, that would be it. If air stayed perfectly still, that those three things would determine your temperature on any given day of the year. But air does move. So that modifies the rules. Okay? So in other words, we wind up getting air on any given day that didn't get conditioned right here. It got conditioned up in Canada, or it got conditioned over the tropical ocean. So it's true that the temperature of the Earth's surface is determined by its elevation, its latitude, its continentality, but air gets conditioned by that surface and then it moves someplace else. And then we get imported air from someplace else, and that's why temperatures change from, from day to day. Okay? So what we need to do now is to look a little bit more closely at how we classify these different air masses. We have certain names for air masses that develop in different regions. We have a, a classification system for air masses, for cold air masses and warm air, air masses. And basically, what we do is we classify air masses based upon the characteristics, the temperature and moisture characteristics of the region in which they form. Okay, and we have a system for doing that. Here is, first of all, on this map, just briefly, here we have listed uh, a maritime 
polar air mass. Maritime polar simply means, maritime means moist, maritime means having an association with the ocean, polar means cold. Here, this circle says continental polar, meaning this air mass originated over the continent and at higher latitudes, so it's cold. Here's again maritime polar over the Pacific, moist and cold. And up here, Arctic. Now, you can say to yourself, well, why is Arctic colder than polar? No reason. The, when they when they decided on the names, uh, they just arbitrarily decided to call air masses that start way, way, way up in the coldest regions of Arctic. A couple of times a year, we get invaded by Arctic air masses. Today is one day. We have an Arctic air mass today. The air over Chicago today, the temperature this morning was about 10 degrees. The air over Chicago today originated up here. It started up here. Through much of December and January, we were getting continuously invaded by air masses that developed up here. Moderately cold air masses, not the super cold, but like when it's in the 20s and 30s, they're usually what we call polar air masses, which develop over continental Canada. That's just regular cold weather. The really bad stuff that we've had this year, we've been in Arctic air for much of the winter. We had a few breaks, but now we're back in it again. And we're about to have an eddy come through tomorrow night. We're going to have snow tomorrow night and Saturday. And that's because an upper-level trough is moving through. And in mid-latitude cycling, yeah? Why was the snow so big? Why did we have... It was like huge clumps of snow falling. And I didn't know there was Well, what, when you see big snowflakes, what you're usually seeing are a lot of ice crystals which are stuck together. Okay, ice crystals themselves are very, very small. But sometimes, due to the temperature layering of the atmosphere, ice, snowflakes as they fall can become coated with tiny water droplets. And that makes the ice crystals stick together. And that depends on the temperature on the environmental lapse rate. Okay, and what was happening, when you see big, that happens with lake effect snow a lot, which we don't really get into, the, we only have 10 weeks, so I don't talk about everything, but very often when you see snow that forms over Lake Michigan, what we call the lake effect, you get really big snowflakes. That's because there's a tendency for there to be a lot of super cooled water droplets in the air, which cause the ice crystals to stick together. So you're seeing the, it's, uh, the ice crystals, uh, the snow, the ice crystals accrete other ice crystals as they fall, and they get bigger and bigger. But anyway, so we have these different air masses, and we have a classification system, which, uh, is, which is based on the temperature and the moisture characteristics of this, these source regions. And it looks like this. Air mass source regions are characterized in the following way. We have for air that developed over continental surface, and I'll show you how we put this uh, shorthand together in a moment, but air that is originating over a continent and is dry, we are going to designate with a small letter C. Air which originates over the ocean and is moist is going to be designated with a small letter M. And their moisture characteristics, then 
the temperature characteristics of a source region are uh, indicated in the following way. Tropical, which is warm, obviously, capital T. Polar, cold, is capital P. And Arctic, which is very cold, is designated with an A. Well, what we do is we put this together, and we classify air masses as a with a combination of its temperature, its moisture, and its temperature characteristics. And we use this shorthand, which creates five different possibilities for air masses. We can have a maritime tropical air mass, which is warm and moist. It originated over tropical ocean. We can have a maritime polar air mass, which is cold and moist. It developed over, let's say, the North Pacific or the North Atlantic. Then we can have three kinds of continental air masses, continental tropical, continental polar, continental arctic. Continental tropical being warm and dry that might originate over Mexico or the southwestern United States. Cold and dry might be con uh, continental polar is cold and dry. And continental arctic is what we're in today and what we were in for most of January. So if we go back to the map here, we would see that CA air masses develop up here, CP, and this is just schematic. Anywhere over continental Canada, if the air is allowed to sit for long enough, it'll be cold and dry. It'll be what we call CP. And continental here would be uh, maritime polar, maritime polar. And these would be maritime tropical. Maritime tropical here. Continental tropical would be over Mexico. So in other words, on the weather map, fortunately, we were, it's not labeled here, but if we were to label these air masses right here over the north central part of the United States, where the air is cold, we would say that if we were labeling air masses, like over the state of Minnesota, what we would simply do, we would write CP. Labeling this air mass within the boundaries of that cold front, continental polar. And if we were, were labeling air masses over the Atlantic Ocean here, here, let's say the Dominican Republic or Cuba, that would be maritime tropical. That air is, is and always has been over the ocean, so it is warm and moist. Okay. okay, now, let's get back to the idea that the migration of these air masses from high latitudes and low latitudes where they form is the reason why temperature changes from day to day. Well, in your second homework, you looked at the temperatures in Chicago versus the 30-year uh, average temperatures. Remember, and you, you looked at the variability, you calculated the standard deviation and the average deviation, all that kind of thing. And I made the statement, or went over the homework, that the jagged line, the jagged line, which was the graph of day-to-day -day temperatures in the year 2000, 
is weather. And the graph blue line, the 30-year average, is climate. Climate is what is normal or what is average. And weather is what actually happens on a day-to-day -day basis. Well, now, when we look at this graph, we can start to analyze it in a much more sophisticated way. We can say, first of all, that when, let's look at this in year 2000, in uh, February and March, look at what the temperatures were like compared to the 30-year average. See how above normal the temperatures were through that whole period? It'd be nice if it were like it this year. What was going on in terms of air masses? Right. We had air masses that had originated in tropical latitudes, which were invading northward at that time. The first thing that you notice here is that there are periods where temperatures tend to be above normal for a time, and then they tend to spike below normal for a time. The weather goes through, yes? I would say if you took those same temperatures and you compare it to the precipitation for the same time of year, do you figure out whether it was a maritime tropical or a continental tropical? I'm not sure what you mean compared to the precipitation. Like you have the temperatures, you, you know that it's coming from the tropical zone, but you don't know how... Okay, you don't know about the moisture content. Well, if you look at precipitation, it doesn't necessarily tell you where the air came from, because precipitation occurs due to uh, storm systems that occur where there are strong temperature contrasts. But sometimes... You can have, you can be under, let's say, a, a maritime tropical air mass for a long period of time, but no lifting mechanism comes through, and there's no precipitation. So you can, and you can also, well, for instance, right now we're under continental Arctic air, very, very low, low moisture content. The dew point this morning was about zero, so the air is very, very dry. The vapor pressure is very, very low. Yet tomorrow night. Saturday morning, we're going to get about six inches of snow. And that snow will be both preceded and followed by continental air. Now, the reason we're getting the precipitation is not because there is so much moisture in the air. There really isn't. The reason we're getting it is because a very strong lifting mechanism is coming through. And it's going to, it's, there's going to be so much lifting, even with the small amount of moisture in the air, it's going to produce a lot of precipitation. So that can be very deceiving. But what you can tell when you look at this map is you can tell where the air has come from. Again, if air never moved, if the atmosphere were completely static, then the temperatures in the year 2000 would be just as smooth a line as the 30-year average. But because of the fact that we are always getting imported air from someplace else, the actual temperature on any given day is an imported temperature from someplace else. And on days where the, you see these upward spikes, air has come up from the south. Where you see the downward spikes, air has been imported from the north. Now, what else can we say? Let's um, think about atmospheric waves. 
Think about atmospheric waves. What did we say about troughs and ridges as far as warm and cold? Somebody? Troughs are cold. Troughs are cold. That means that where we go through a period of time where, like here, where temperatures tend to be spiking downward, we're probably experiencing the passage of an upper-level trough. And where you're going through a period where temperatures are spiking upward, like here, there must be an upper-level ridge. There has to be. Because temperatures determine atmospheric thickness, thickness determines atmospheric height, and when you're in a positive thickness anomaly, it means you're in an atmospheric ridge, by definition. Where there's a trough moving through, heights will be lower than normal, and temperatures will be lower than normal, too. That means that there is a relationship between air masses and troughs and ridges. Air masses are associated with air that has come from the north and is cold. Ridges are associated with air that has come from the south. Okay? So when you look at the temperature graph, you can tell where the air masses have come from, and you can also tell whether ridges or troughs have been moving through. Now, you know that in uh, weather forecasting, there is such a thing as long-range weather forecasting. The National Weather Service has a long-range long prediction branch, and they will put out 30-day forecasts uh, and even seasonal forecasts now, which are uh, they're not terribly useful, but the 30-day outputs are. And the way those forecasts are generated is they, uh, the computer has a very sophisticated mathematical model of the atmosphere that is able to predict the progression of troughs and ridges in the atmosphere the, the same way it would predict eddies moving in a stream. And it can predict out to 10, 20, 30 days where the troughs and ridges are going to be as it simulates the atmosphere. And we know that there is a correlation between temperature and the height of upper-level pressure surfaces because of the way they depend on thickness. So by predicting the progression of the troughs and ridges in these atmospheric simulations, they're able to predict whether or not the graph will be spiking up or will be spiking down. And that's the way long-range weather forecasting is done at least the technical part of it. It's a simulation that they simulate the progression of troughs and ridges, and we know how temperatures are associated with that. Okay, now I just want to spend a little bit of time talking about fronts. Here on the weather map, we see... Uh, Cold front here. Let me actually just jump ahead. Here is very simple diagram of the four different kinds of fronts. Cold fronts are 
the leading edge of a cold air mass where the cold air is actually advancing. So in other words, the, the blue triangles are pointing in the direction that the cold air is moving. A warm front is the leading edge of an air mass where the warm air is advancing. Very simple. By the way, the word front was coined during the First World War. This whole uh, business about air masses and a lot of the basic theory of meteorology was originated during the First World War. And at that time, of course, uh, they, the front the word front had been coined to represent the clashing of armies in Europe. And uh, this was all done around 1914 and 1915. They decided to name the clashing of air masses after what was going on on the battlefield. That's why fronts are called fronts. It was actually, they're actually named after uh, the military arrangements in the First, First World War. Stationary front is where neither air mass is winning. The boundary isn't moving. Neither the cold air nor, nor, the war, nor the warm air is advancing. And finally, we have something called an occluded front. Now, this front, this occluded front, is usually represented as a purple line with both the, the semicircles, of course, represent, red semicircles represent a warm front, blue triangles are a cold front, red and blue alternating are stationary front, the symbols are on opposite sides, indicating this moving. An front is where you have purple symbols, triangles, and semicircles on the same side of the line. This occluded front, I'm going to leave mysterious now. We're not going to discuss that until next week, because an occluded front is the result of what happens during a storm. So when we talk about air masses, we're really, we talk about three basic kinds of fronts. Cold, warm, and stationary, which simply mean which air mass is advancing. Okay, so we've, we've gone through the general circulation. We know about the tropical circulation. We then digressed a little bit. We spoke about monsoons. You're going to have to know about summer monsoons, winter monsoons. Then we digressed even further. We spoke about sea breezes and lake breezes the last time, which are kind of like mini monsoons. Okay, they're due to temperature differences causing pressure differences along coastlines, coastline, which cause uh, sea breezes and lake breezes to develop. Then we went on to the mid-latitudes, and we discussed how the general circulation works in the mid-latitudes, jet streams, waves, air masses, now fronts. So at this point, we should be able to make some sense out of today's weather map. So let's take a look at that. I haven't actually looked at it. Let's see what is on the weather map today. By the time it comes up, the weather will be over. Here is the current map, and what do we see? Well, 
here's a front down, here's a cold front, which has exited the East Coast. It's moving from land to sea, see the blue triangles pointing toward the Atlantic Ocean. We have low pressure over here. Here's, there's a cyclone, with, they're indicating two points of lowest atmospheric pressure. Notice there is some precipitation, blue is snow on this map. There's some precipitation over New York and up over Maine. Why would that be? Why would there be precipitation there? What would be causing the air to lift? Convergence. Convergence, right, exactly. Um, fronts are also a mechanism that causes lifting in the atmosphere. There doesn't seem to be very much associated with this cold front right at the moment, although these showers over the Gulf of Mexico might be, might be. Uh, there is an alternative explanation. You see these blue, uh, these blue uh, speckles here, that's rain shower activity. Because it's more or less parallel to the coastline, probably the reason for that is that, remember, the air is moving counter counterclockwise around this low pressure here, and it's converging. So basically, the air is is would be moving from northwest to southeast, clockwise out of the high, counterclockwise across the ice bars into lower pressure. So there are northwest winds over the Gulf of Mexico. And what would be happening here, Gulf of Mexico is still very warm because of the specific heat of water. It never really gets terribly cold. And this air, which is rather cold, moving this, we're in a continental Arctic air mass over much of the United States now, which is quite so cold, is all the same air mass. It's moving southward over the warm water of the Gulf of Mexico, and the air is being heated from below. When air is being heated from below, that causes the environmental lapse rate to be very steep. Okay. And that, we'll get into this when we talk about thunderstorms, but that allows for the lifting mechanism that we call convection. When air is heated from below, the warm air rises. Okay. And remember that convection was a lifting mechanism. So you have, when you have cold air moving over warm water, the, and the air is heated from below by the water, the air rises because it's being from below. The same thing that causes lake effect snow. Okay, so this, these rain showers off here in the Gulf of Mexico are really caused by the same thing, which is causing the snow shower activity up here along the Michigan coastline. Up there, very cold air is moving across the relatively warm water of Lake Michigan, because Lake Michigan is still largely unfrozen. So all things are relative. It's relatively warm. That's and that causes the lower atmosphere to get heated, it rises. Convection is a lifting mechanism, it causes precipitation. The same thing is happening here. Okay, and we'll, we get into that more in, in chapter 11. But this precipitation here, the stuff downwind of Lake Erie and Lake Ontario perhaps, is associated with uh, convection. Yes? What's the big clump of ice and water on the East Coast? It's a mistake. Oh. Okay. <laughs> this, these maps, unfortunately, are analyzed by a machine. This is analyzed by a computer, and you, you can't uh, 
you know, uh, hold your breath by the analysis. This is just, it had a bad data point and it didn't know what to do. So, all right, so we have an air mass here. We have a maritime, uh, rather, a continental Arctic air mass, which is over the uh, eastern central part of the country. And remember, the air is flowing across the isobars at an angle from high pressure to low pressure, counterclockwise into below. So we have northwesterly winds today here of air, which has been imported from the north. This air is flowing down out of Canada, and that's why it's a continental Arctic origin. Now, tomorrow night it's going to snow. And what's going to happen is this area over here, where there's a, there, this is actually a little closed area of low pressure over North Dakota, which is just starting to form. That is actually going to become what we call an Alberta clipper, which we will be discussing in about a week or so. And that is going to become a very, very significant weather system. In fact, let's just take a look at, show you. Saturday morning, according to this weather map, this is a uh, forecast, a 48-hour forecast which is produced by a computer at the National Weather Service, it's showing an intense center of low pressure over Illinois, and all this green represents precipitation. And it's indicating that starting late tomorrow night into Saturday morning, and this is for uh, actually 6 a.m. Saturday morning, it should be snowing like crazy here. That blip on the weather map that was over North Dakota is going to blow up, and it's going to become what we call a mid-latitude cyclone. Mid-latitude cyclone is the result of one of these eddies in the jet stream. And what we're going to be discussing next week is what the consequences are when these jet streams break up into these waves, into these whirlwinds, and how that actually forms the storms, which are the big events of our weather. And one of them is going to be coming through Saturday morning. Essentially, one of these big eddies, these whirls, that are part of the general circulation, 
will be creating the snow tomorrow night and Saturday, I think Saturday morning, and um, that's the topic of chapter 10, but that's for uh, after your next quiz. Anyway, your next quiz is on uh, Tuesday, it'll cover chapter 6, which is lifting mechanisms, so you'll want to know about different lifting mechanisms, fronts, orographic, convergence, convection. Make sure you know what all those four are. Then we went on to chapter eight. You want to know what the general circulation is. Know about the tropical circulation. Know about monsoons. Know the difference between a summer monsoon and a winter monsoon. Know what a sea breeze is. Know what causes a sea breeze. Then we went on to the general circulation in the mid-latitudes. Know about the westerlies. Know why there are westerly winds that encircle the globe in the higher latitudes. Know what a jet stream is. Know what a trough is. Know what a ridge is. Know that a trough is associated with cold air and a ridge is associated with warm air. Know what an air mass is. Know how air masses form. Know why air masses don't form in the mid-latitudes. If I were to ask you right now, why don't air masses form in mid-latitudes, what's the answer? Right. Air doesn't sit still long enough. Okay? And then uh, just basically a little bit that we covered about fronts. So that's about it. If there are no questions, we'd like to leave your...